from aunts and uncles. And my dad actually handed me this book one day and said, oh, read this. This is somebody's memoir about the Vietnam War. They didn't have any, right? So they were in the refugee camps. And at that time, my mother was pregnant with my brother. And so they had to leave first. They ended up in Canada, whereas their siblings ended up in the U.S. and Australia. They are the only ones here. Welcome to Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie Podcast. Let's dive headfirst into this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Yi your Chinese auntie. In this episode, we talk to Diane Hua Stewart. Diane is a colleague and a friend from grad school. We talk about Diane's path, brain spotting, food policies, how food affects our health, food in Asian cultures, and we also talk about her relatives who escaped the Vietnam War, where Asian orange was used. We discuss scarcity mindset that can be common in immigrants. In case you have not heard of Asian Orange, it was a powerful herbicide used by U.S. military during the Vietnam War. Asian Orange has been proven to cause serious health issues including cancer, other health complications like rashes and severe psychological and neurological problems. You can learn more about it online. As always, advice from your Chinese auntie is at the end of each episode. Hello, Diane. Hi, Patricia. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you. So first question, who are you? What do you do? Your background? So, so we can get to know you better. Sure. So I am Diane Hoa Stewart. I'm a registered psychotherapist. I practice in Ontario. I'm also a certified brain spotting therapist. I am a mother of three kids, including twins. I am of Chinese ancestry. My parents actually were from Vietnam and uh, I'm a second generation uh, Chinese Canadian. Yeah. How old are the twins? They are four and a half, so they're almost five, turning five in April. How's that going? It's going. I keep hearing from other twin parents that it gets better, and I have to say it does. And you always run up with new challenges as they get older. But it's been interesting. It's been fun to see them kind of blossom into their own uh, personalities. They started JK this past fall, and that was huge because they had to be they moved from their old Montessori school where they were comfortable and it was smaller. And now they're into this bigger school with the big kids and there's in separate classrooms, which they protested for a while, but I think it's worked out for them. So that's great. Do you speak Mandarin? I don't speak any other languages other than English. I have to say, which is not uncommon because I am the youngest of two in my family. My brother is much better at speaking. We speak a dialect called Tujiao. And so, you know, growing up, we did speak that. It got lost with me. So I can speak it broken when it it sounds funny. So I don't speak it. And I understand Cantonese. And I can get by with Vietnamese when I'm at a restaurant. But my parents are fluent in so many languages, right? Okay. Mandarin, China, uh, Cantonese, Chuzhou, Vietnamese. Do they live near you? I just, I'm just thinking like community-wise. Do you have help? Yeah, I actually don't. So I grew up in Toronto, where my parents still are, and I'm living in the Durham region of Ontario right now. And okay. so it's about a good 45-minute to hour drive from my parents. They do come to visit and see the grandkids every once in a while, but... Yeah, they're still in my childhood home along this very famous street where lots of like multicultural kids, newcomers, immigrants would, would settle. We weren't too far from an infamous community there where there was lots of poverty, crime, and so on. So that was just my life. And I, I, I took the bus. I, I just went in and out of that neighborhood. 
And so it was interesting when I went to University of Toronto, I got to see where the other half of the city lived and how they were and the the income disparities and the differences in terms of how pockets of folks in Toronto lived. And so it was really eye-opening for me. Do you think that impacted who you are? Or did you not notice the difference when you were growing up, the income disparity? I didn't really notice the difference. Yeah, I didn't really notice the difference. Not It wasn't really stark and really obvious to me. Actually, I think I, I, I know, started to notice it when I was in high school and I would be an English tutor. And I would tutor kids, actually, who were preparing to go to private school. So their parents would pay like $65 to $85 per hour, which was insane to me at the time for their kids to do exam prep, essentially, Ooh. to get into these private schools. And I thought, wow, there are private schools that parents actually pay tuition for while we've got this public school system. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I went on to university and I met some of these kids who went to these private schools. So that was fascinating to hear about their upbringing and, and what that was like. Yeah. What did you do at the University of Toronto? I studied political science. I went into it not really knowing what I wanted to do, to be honest. Um, so I took a bunch of courses and landed on political science. I think that was just my natural interest in politics. And because of my parents' background with the Vietnam War, always mm-hmm. interested and in social justice. And I landed on political science, did well in a few courses, did that, was interested in health for a little bit, health policy. I also minored in Buddhist Buddhism studies. Yeah. So that was just a, something that came up for me, became really interested in it and the idea of just studying Buddhism for the rest of my life as a career and teaching it sounds really attractive and appealing to me. So I looked up a whole bunch of schools and there was like this school in Hawaii where mm. I could study and get you know, my, my master's degree and we'd proceed to become a professor. And I presented that to my dad. And of course, you know how that goes with the Asian parents. Immediately shut that down. You're insane. No, like you're, you need to go and become a lawyer or a doctor or a pharmacist. Oh. Or, and there's no like jobs out there to be a Buddhism studies professor, which is not entirely untrue, right? So I immediately dropped that idea and I just went and worked after my undergrad mm-hmm. and I ended up in a nonprofit where I did some help programming and education, loved that, and then decided to do my graduate studies and proceeded to do that in Saskatoon at the University of Saskatchewan. So I picked that because I was really interested in agri-food policies at the time and that linked to health. And that was mm-hmm. also spurred by my interest in how much food can affect our health and agricultural oh, policies. Oh. And, and I think that was also an interest because I had learned, I was starting to beginning, I was beginning to learn about the role of that when I had a conversation with my cousin um, at that time, who was taking care of my oldest cousin, who was, you know, dying from cancer. And I was beginning to put the pieces together, connect the dots. And I had thought she grew up in a time and during the Vietnam War, she was the eldest child. They had sprayed, if Agent Orange, yeah, yeah. gallons and millions of gallons of Agent Orange. And that's got to have effects on a person. And so I thought, that's not right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, so I grew up in Singapore, but the, until the Western process came in, we're not going to give the names here, but you know, the sodas and the cheeses and stuff came in. The focus was on whole foods. My mother died in 2020 until the day she died, she didn't own a microwave. She refused to use it, refused to have one, even though my brother wanted to buy one for her. So when you were talking about food, and I spent 14 years in Chinese medicine before becoming a therapist. So right. it was always quite perplexed that 
there was no education about how whole foods is better. Of course, then we bring in some people just can simply cannot afford fresh food, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because processed food is cheaper and fast food used to be cheaper. Why is it that there is no education that vegetables, whole foods, proteins better than a package of cereal, things like that? That's why right. like, when you said that your cousin was, that was dying of cancer, the Asian orange, I'm like, honestly, we don't talk about this. We don't. Yeah. Like, and when you think about the traditional Vietnamese diet too, right? What is the traditional Vietnamese Lots of vegetables, right? Herbs. It's just home cooking. There yeah. wasn't a lot of processed foods back then, yeah. right? So just wholesome cooking. Yeah. When you look at around the world, the rates of obviously obesity and cancer before a lot of these processed foods started to percolate into the food system, you see this change, not yeah. you know, diabetes, all of that. So oh. there's certainly this connection there. Yeah. And uh, because of the Chinese medicine, background. I'm a big believer in balance, right? You mm-hmm. get that too. Mm-hmm. Sure, I also eat chips and stuff. <laughs> but I think there needs to be a balance like you need to still eat the whole foods, queen cooking, things like that. Right. And again, saying this from a place of privilege is that we can do that. Some people don't have the options of doing mm-hmm. that. But yeah, a lot of it is government policy. Right? I remember growing up in Singapore has those wet markets, like you just mom shop every day. It wasn't you don't That's go to the grocery store once a week. I remember they kill the chickens in the market. You know, not necessarily a great memory, but I still have that memory that, oh, mom wants a chicken. The guy would be like, come back in 10 minutes. Yeah. So in with your work, was there anything surprising? Uh, yeah. So I had done my, my graduate studies in Saskatoon and we learned about food security and which is really interesting because you were in Saskatoon and there would be lots of low-income families there. And when you see within the one kilometer radius, there is no grocery store there. There's convenience stores, right? For example, mm-hmm. and that explains a whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. And you think about what is the government's role in terms of ensuring and creating access for folks. And of course, when you look at how much things cost, like a loaf of bread in some of these rural communities, it's insane. Vegetables, fruits, right? And what do we do about that? And so I went and did my practicum at Health Canada, which was really eye-opening. I thought, okay, this is fantastic. I'm going to get this experience with Food Canada, those who were in charge of developing the food guide. And it completely disillusioned me. And I thought, this is probably not where I want to start my career, right? I, I don't want to be here. It was very high level, bureaucratic, a lot of what you hear about. It's and a lot of low job satisfaction from what I've observed. Did you feel helpless? Yeah. Wasn't very motivating. So I graduated and not really sure what I wanted to do. I certainly didn't want to do high-level policy work like that at that time. And I looked into some further continuing education. And I I was working with a BC leadership chair in food. I think it was food and environmental health at the time. And I had this really great interest in studying uh, mercury levels in salmon in First Nations communities. And I had applied to McGill and applied to University of Northern British Columbia and got accepted to both. Yeah. And so I accepted to UNBC and I was heading to Prince George and personal events happened, right? My mother got sick and I was also in a relationship at that time. And I was also sick of just being away from my family and my friends for so many years. And I thought, I really want to feel grounded and rooted somewhere. And it gave me this sense of, for the first time, this is the importance of home and community. And so I actually withdrew my acceptance, decided to stay in Toronto 
and worked in a bunch of jobs and finally landed on the job in health research, doing some health research, which was really great. I was truly blessed to work with who I have felt is, has been a mentor for me. And a lot of that work has taken me to, again, First Nations communities to make health education around cardiovascular health and rural villages in, in Tanzania. I was going to ask you about Tanzania. If you don't mind talking a bit about it, what did you do there and how was the experience? So we, so the project was really to help increase the management and prevention of hypertension using smartphones, right? So text messages, like text messages, just connecting with community members there to, to bring them in, to have them have their blood pressure measurements taken and follow up and and that kind of thing. So it, it was at that time where text messages started to be a thing in terms of health communication and education. And so we would send participants in the study healthy eating messages. This is what you can do. And it's interesting because you hear about health research and it's very, it traditionally has been very patriarchal and colonialist kind of views of this is what you should do. But we were very careful because and we worked with a cultural medical anthropologist to ensure that it was very much community driven, right? The messages that we created were acceptable oh, to those oh, folks oh. reading it. It made sense to them. It resonated with them, right? So you do all the, the things, right? Like oh, engage with them, focus loop them, have them come up with the messages and tailor them. Dying. as well. So it was really eye-opening for me to see this is how research can be done yeah. to fully engage with the community members. And I think when I was there, it was really wonderful because their culture is very warm welcoming, right? When you greet each other, it's, it's back and forth. How are you? How is your family? How is your mother? Whoa. How are your kids? Whoa. It's that sense of taking care of each other mm -hmm. be before anything else. Yeah. It's that the community, right? The collectivist culture. That... Collectivist culture, very warm, welcoming. And that's something that I could really appreciate. I'm curious when you look back now, do you think there's a big impact? Especially when you work at Tanzania, because they're so warm, it's such a collectivist community culture. Would that impact the food and the health versus an individual Western culture? Yeah. What I've noticed is, and this is very much, this is very similar too with, there's similar, similarities with First Nations communities, right? Mm -hmm. We would have like feasts and this was their way of joining members of the community together this was an event and this was an event right and this was also our way of being welcomed into the community as well and even from my own personal experience when my in chinese like this family style eating right of you i grew up and you have like individual bowls of rice and you've got these big huge plates in the middle and we're all kind of sharing communally and it was we're always eating together and that was prioritized too and even my mother typically where not very emotional but have you eaten yet would be her greeting yeah, yeah. still is to this day Right. Um, which I, I can now appreciate. And when I also look at my, my own kind of love for Vietnamese cuisine, well, there's something about that. When I have whatever I have and it, it just, there's a, it's, it brings me back to a place that's almost indescribable to my ancestors. Well, it almost hits me in the bones, right? When I have that type of food, my body, feels nourished it's it welcomes it it's like a big warm hug it's comfort food and that has a benefit to not only your physical health but your mental spiritual health yes. right what about then you with your children food do you, is that what you do too is do you want to eat 
Are you hungry? Yeah, I do. I still do a bit of that. For sure. My way of taking care of them and making sure they're nourished and cared for is, and interestingly, because I'm in a mixed marriage, like my husband is Scottish, right? So a lot of the food that I grew up eating, he wasn't ever exposed to. Yeah. We ate whole fish with fish heads on the plate, right? (laughs) I would sit there as a child with like crabs, just breaking crabs all night. Yes. Sucking and eating away, and that was me. And I often talk about that with my kids, and it totally crosses them out. And I was gonna say, is your husband open to it or not? He's also vegetarian, which makes it even worse. Oh, that makes it harder, you know. Yeah, but I think part of my passion for that is I when I want to make sure that's passed down to them. If there's anything that they can take away from being my children, is that this is part of your culture. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I talked about this in a different episode, but I spent a bit of time doing ancestral human work. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was, you know, especially for those of us now living in the Western society, if you're feeling a disconnect from your ancestors, to go mm-hmm. back to eating what your ancestors used to eat. Like, for I don't know whether it's for you, but for me, I stand maybe a good year or two not eating rice and then feel great. And then mm-hmm. one of my girlfriends, who's also a Chinese medicine doctor, she said, like, no, just do a little bit of it. Just even if it's two spoonfuls a few times a week. And she said, do white rice, don't do brown rice. Our ancestors didn't do brown rice. And I did. And I could feel that nourishment mm-hmm. that was lacking when I ate more of a diet that my ancestors didn't eat. I'd be curious when your kids are older, whether that would have an impact on them. Yeah. And with my, it's interesting because with one of my twins, she loves rice. She will always ask for rice. It's her favorite thing to eat in the world. And they said, like, you're about to leave my child. (laughs) And the other one, other two, not so much. My my firstborn has never loved rice. He will still not eat it to this day, unfortunately. (laughs) That's fine. He can, he was like very much like me growing up. I was a very picky eater, interestingly, Mm -hmm. very picky. And it wasn't until I think in my later teens where I just developed this palate and I just could try everything and anything. And I had this really great appetite. Curiosity. So... There's always that possibility. But going back to what you said about like just connecting with your ancestral roots, right? I think that's part of it. You eat the diet that your ancestors ate, engage in rituals or practices that kind of bring you back to that sense of home or like comfort and safety. Speaking of that, do you have rituals and practices that you do? To help you, like to help you grow, connect with your ancestors? Yeah. So I grew up, my parents were Buddhists and we would go to the temple. And because we've moved out of the city, I haven't been to the temple in so long. But this oh. past holiday, I needed a very, I was very adamant on going. So we went, we took our kids and it was the first time that my daughters were there. And they oh. were just observing what happens. Right. But that's something that has been very important to me all throughout my life. And it's interesting because now that my husband is part of the picture and he was baptized, Chris, and so he attended United Church growing up. When we had our son, we had him baptized. I said, great. I'm open to that. No problem. And so when my daughters were born, we thought, okay, let's get them baptized. And I thought to myself, why will I do that for myself too? So I decided to get myself baptized. And I've always been very open to and spiritual and I've always been curious. And I don't necessarily think that you can only be Buddhist mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. only be Christian. Mm-hmm. And especially for someone like myself and my family, we want to be open to all. And I think even in some of the work that I do with my own clients, I'm always fascinated 
I have lots of clients that ex- explore their own spirituality and religion well, with me. Well, and those always lead to very interesting conversations. I have um, a client who always educates me about what it's like to be a Muslim. Some of the struggles that she faces. Her reverence for her faith. And it's in those sessions where I feel this. The work that I do is also a gift to me, too. So I was brought up Taoist and then I became Buddhist. I ordained as a Buddhist against my mother's wishes. Because my mother was very conservative in the sense that she was like, what happens if you meet a guy who's not a Buddhist? Because she still had the, I don't know whether your parents did, but my parents had the <clears throat> Buddhist will marry Buddhist, Christian will marry Christian, <clears throat> Catholic will marry Catholic. And this is years ago. So my mother was quite against it, but I knew it was the right thing to do. But my thinking also is along the same line as yours. I think if you want to change your mind along the way, it's okay. I don't think that if you're baptized or if you're ordained as a Buddhist, 10 years down the road, you decided that I don't want to be either, that you're not allowed to, because I think these are the choices we made. And we have have the freedom to change it. With your kids being baptized, when you took them to the temple, was there like question as to mom, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Were they curious? You said they were watching, but did they ask a lot of questions? My younger, my young, my, my twins were mostly just curious and just observing. They didn't know what to make of it. It was their first time. So Ooh. they didn't have any big questions. And I think there's at that age where, okay, this is what happens. And when my son turned, I think six, he's seven now. When you start to turn six, I think that's when you start to develop those bigger picture questions, like what happens when we die? Are there other realms or, or worlds oh. out there? Because he's really into Pokemon and when Pokemon world, there's oh, like, yeah. I don't even, I can't even explain it, that he starts to think about those things, right? So I, I talked to him about that. I, I explained to him, this is what some people believe oh. happens when you die. And other people believe this. And this is how mommy grew up and this is how daddy grew up. And you get sort of exposure to both. And as you grow up, you begin to make your own choices and decide for yourself too what you want. That's so great. They're giving him the freedom of cheese as he gets older. I'm curious, your parents, the Vietnam War, did they talk about it? They don't. My mother is, my mother is just very avoidant around the whole topic. She doesn't even want to go back to Vietnam. My dad has been back and he's probably going to go back this year. And he's much more open to talking about it. I've heard stories from aunts and uncles and my dad actually handed me this book one day and said, Oh, read this. This is somebody's memoir about the Vietnam War. And I said, okay, I'll read it. And I have read passages here and there about it. You hear about what it's like for families in terms of forced migration, right? Resettling Mm -hmm. into a new space. What it was like in the refugee camps, right? It was what it was like to be part of the group, the boat people, Vietnamese boat people, where you had boats that didn't make it family members that drowned yeah but on the other hand you see the vietnamese community all around the world they've thrived they've been able to thrive they've been able to resettle build communities and you look at of course vancouver toronto california right and i see them as that just fills my heart with so much joy and pride so dad will talk about it but mom won't was mental health talked about when you were growing up but was it even a thing yeah no and it's when you look at your parents because of what you do now as a psychotherapist Mm -hmm. and then we talk about intergenerational trauma them fleeing the vietnam war the trauma and when you look at your parents now and the way you were brought up do you think oh yeah this is because 
the way we were brought up, or the way you talk, the way you function in your marriage, or the way you parent us, because that you guys escaped, had to leave your country. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, it's interesting because my parents are pretty, I mean, we've got like distant relatives here, but in terms of direct support, they didn't have any, right? So they were in the refugee camps. And at that time, my mother was pregnant with my brother. And so they had to leave first. So they ended up in Canada, or whereas their siblings ended up in the U.S. and Australia. They are the only ones here. So it was extremely lonely, I can imagine, for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Now, as a, as a therapist, for reflecting and looking back on what their life was like, not knowing English, not knowing a single soul, they settled and they were sponsored by a really gracious Christian family in Port Hope. The family, the dad was a medical doctor and they had two kids of their own. They welcomed my parents into their mm-hmm. family. And when my brother was born, apparently he was the first Asian and non-white baby that most of them has ever seen. So he was Googled over a lot that my dad would drive back and forth from Port Hope to Toronto, which is a, a lengthy drive, right? Just to make ends meet. And so it was part of that very typical survivalist um, story of we, we're immigrants in this family. We don't have a lot of support. We have to make it work. There's no choice but two. And so it's that constant sense of go. And when they finally ended up with their business, I think part of it was they couldn't let go of that. It was still that sense of we need to make sure that this is going to be okay, that we're going to be okay, that we're safe. The scarcity. The scarcity minds. Would you say in your work with clients who are immigrants or parents who were immigrants, would you say that's common? Because it was common in my family and with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting because you see it just doesn't go away in one generation. Mm-hmm. It gets passed down. This is what we call intergenerational transmission of trauma, scarcity mm-hmm. mindset. That sense of hypervigilance, that sense of having, you know, the pressure to keep going. If you stopped, if you took a breath, a breath, it was dangerous for you. Yeah, you would die, literally. You so, would die, yes. they still like that? Are they better, more subtle? I think they're definitely more subtle. They're retired now, so they're getting a sense of, okay, we get to finally feel like we can enjoy our life, but this mm. is it. For most of their life, they've been very hardworking folks who tended to their own business that they ran on their own with not much help. And Mm -hmm. this is something that has happened because of the whole history of the Vietnam War. And when I think about mental health too, I look at my mother's side of the family who all ended up in, most of them ended up in the U.S. Oh, Older, younger siblings, mental health was not a huge thing, but it definitely showed up. So there's history of depression, history of bipolar, history of addiction. um, And it it makes a lot of sense when you think about the trauma and resettling into a new country. With no support. Not having the language for mental health, because our great-grandparents didn't even have a clue of what depression is. And like you said just now, is that our ancestors, parents, the first goal was you need to survive. We need to survive this. But there's no time. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no time to acknowledge your feelings, right? Like scarcity was one of my biggest lessons this lifetime. I once I recognized it, it was like, oh, took this on from my parents, especially my mom. She never let it go. 
until the day she died. Yeah. Did it show up for you? I think part of it did. Yeah. The scarcity yeah. mindset. I think for me, it feels like this drive. I can't sit still. I'm always on the move. Right. Yeah. It's not safe to rest. And that's something that I'm learning for myself, especially as a parent, that is so important to learn for yourself, to regulate, to be okay with. How much do you think part of that is the Western influence, right? If you rest, it means you're not productive. If you rest, it means you're failing, right? And when you look at your parents' experiences, what you took on and in the Western languaging of, oh, you must never stop. We must always achieve. Mm-hmm. It's almost, I don't know whether you did, you, you've done this. If you take a step back, you look at it, and you just, wait, how much of it is family? How much of it is Western influence? And can I be mindful that if I'm always on the go, which part of it is intergenerational trauma, which part of it is being influences that is not helpful. And how do I move through it, see through mm-hmm. it and let it go? Mm-hmm. Or is it too a mess, you think? I, I don't know. I'll tell you this. In the past year, I've really focused on my own healing journey. So I was really open to trying anything and anything under everything and anything under the sun, mostly just very curious about different ways that people heal outside of therapy. Because I had started brain spotting and I was curious about that. I had started to notice too, I would also have as a therapist after certain sessions, there's heaviness. There are some clients and the content of what comes up in the session can be quite triggering and heavy. And so how do you decipher, like you said, how much of those emotions are my own and how much of that am I carrying that are is actually not mine? And so I embarked on this sort of journey of trying to figure out how do I move through this and so by talking with fellow therapists, they had suggested Reiki and other forms. And that was where I land, ended up really enjoying energetic healing. Mm-hmm. Being able to move through like the molasses, what comes up for you, right? So sound bathing with sound bowls surprisingly has been really helpful for me. I was a yeah. little skeptical at first, but. I, I keep going back because it feels good and I, I can't explain it. I've tried emotion therapy, which was interesting. And this was with a traditional Chinese medicine who also offered this, a practitioner who also offered this. And it was interesting because she had picked up on emotions like depression. And she had said, depression was passed on to you from your mother and from her dad's and so that side of the family and it goes back 16 generations when you heard that did it resonate with you i think it really opened things up for me because when i'm a parent and i'm in those in in the trenches with my kids and i feel this i'm just like this feels so incredibly hard well not because they're young, not because they are twins, not because I'm do- doing all these other things, but there has to be something else here oh, okay. that's mm-hmm. showing up. And I'm thinking this, the anger, the rage, the visceral kind of reactions that I get, the emotions that show up. We mm. talk about that intergenerational transmission mm-hmm. of trauma. Right. And mm-hmm. so it allowed me to see that oh, there's a lot happening here that I can say, okay, all of this here didn't start with me. And it didn't start with my mother, actually, because I think there was a period where I was like, oh, I was really frustrated with that relationship. And I got to see this bigger picture and it broadened my scope of understanding and allowed for a lot of compassion, empathy. Whoa. 
and just curiosity too, as well. And what this means for me as a parent to also give myself grace and that, okay, there's nothing wrong with me and I don't have to fix everything. And so part of that is just going through different types of healing to understand. And I think that's really important as therapists. Totally agree with that. Because we have to do our own healing work so we can be better at helping others. Because if we don't, then the one that heals shows up. Can you talk about brain spotting? Yeah. I think as a somatic practitioner, you appreciate this. So brain spotting came out of EMDR. It was actually an EMDR therapist who discovered brain spotting. And there's a story about David Grant, who was a EMDR therapist. And in EMDR, it's very protocolized, right? There are specific instructions and things that you set of things you do ha- you have to follow. Um, but he also noticed that when he would go across the the client's vision field, there was a certain spot that he would cross in her vision field, a very precise brain spot or eye spot. And it allowed him to retrieve a lot of memories for her, right? And she was this figure skater. She had done really well, but there was a certain um, technique that she had challenges with. And he would have her actually imagine herself going through the actual motions in her brain of what do you do when you go from takeoff to landing? And what is that precise spot that happens where you get stuck and you aren't able to, you're not able to successfully complete that? And he would notice that once she went to a specific spot and she would have eye reflexes there and a whole bunch of memories associated with her figure skating career, her appearance, divorce, childhood trauma came out for her. And interestingly, the next day, she was finally able to successfully complete that technique. And so it it really helped spur this curiosity around precise fixed eye spots in a person's visual field that gives you access to that midbrain Right, that subcortical part of your brain where you store a lot of that trauma. And so you'll notice that when you are talking to somebody, for example, their eyes will gravitate towards a specific spot sometimes. And Mm -hmm. it's also their way of retrieving information. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that when you talk about something, whether it is like your pet, when you look to your left, you'll notice there's something that comes up in your body. To your right, it resonates a little bit differently. So it's really the work as a brain spotting therapist is to really help excavate out those pieces, what we call trauma capsules, whether Mm -hmm. it's a negative cognition, belief, memory, and to help the client reprocess it, right? Sometimes it's also just like negative old programming you receive growing up. And it's a way for us to work through mindfulness processing and you're just confirming those core beliefs. So you could, as much as you can work on disturbing somatic pieces, you can also do strengthening work, right? To expand on a client's strength. How would that that look like? Like the strengthening work, how would that look like? Yeah. So I've, Use brain spotting for things like addictions, PTSD, anxiety, chronic pain, for example. I had a client that would come to me because he would be making the same mistakes over and over again. But there were instances where he would be able to be this version of himself. And so we would locate the spot, what we call like truth and lie spots. This is the truth spot. Right. And this is the lie spot. And we help the client process that and understand it for himself in a way that makes it possible for him to actually believe and feel that 
he can find a resolution with this issue. So you're empowering the plant. Yes. And it's almost in that sense of setting up new neural pathways. The beautiful thing about plasticity is that we have the ability to do. And I think we see, just as we see marbles going down the sand, for example, the first time it goes down, going to be a little bit tough and effortful. But once it keeps going down that same path, it becomes easier and effortless. And that's very much the work that we do is that we help clients discover a new neural pathway and build that positive neural pathway of relating to those issues and themselves in a different way from the inside out, from those trauma parts of their brain. And I think that's powerful because when you're engaging in talk therapy, traditionally, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You know what you want to do, but there's always this moment where you feel stuck. Yeah. And that's where the brain spawning comes in. It's a sort of this subconscious kind of hijacking of that neocortex of your brain. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. I'm, I, I love it. And it's been so impactful for the work with my clients where I'm able to take them to process a lot of these pieces and in a different way, in a deeper way too. This is why different therapists offers different modalities. Last thing I would like to ask you, with what is happening in the world, how do you stay hopeful? When I see, there's so much, I think, on social media that is very triggering and traumatizing, for sure. But in... I would say in looking at how some of us have been able to mobilize together, we are so far removed from what is happening. It's so easy to turn nigh, but we don't. And so when I see that there's a huge community of us that are out there speaking out against it, condemning the acts, it gives you that sense of, okay, we're not condemned. We're, you know, we are still who we are as human beings. We are compassionate. We are hopeful. When I talk to some of my clients around this issue too, when especially those who feel like they have been continuing, continuously marginalized as a group, what also gives them hope? is they get to see how much how much their faith has been able to help them. the resiliency yeah. of their people well, gives them strength too yeah that's so great i cannot remember her name but there's a black author who wrote about doing social justice work she said that we all take on different roles some of us come together as communities some of us are organizers some of us go and protest some of us, because of some limitations, uh, but they have the financial resources, they make donations. And it's when you put everybody with different roles together, and that's how things change. Movements get started. And I think that's so important to remember. Some people feel quite helpless when they want to change things, but they feel so small. Yeah, and I think there's also a sense for some. T- sometimes there's that sense of guilt. Yeah. It's hard to give ourselves permission sometimes to experience or allow ourselves to experience joy and pleasure, while the other side of the world is experiencing what they are experiencing. How's your relationship with guilt? Being a Chinese, brought up by Asian parents, I've learned to get better at it. We could. At, at just being able to sit with it. Yeah. Mm. Was it like prominent, like when you were growing up? Don't think so. Oh, that's so good. You're so lucky. I think it was much more when I was younger. I would be very mindful of things when I was younger. I remember this one time uh, my parent bought me like a Chinese bun oh. for school because I think I had thought or they had thought I had a class trip. And it turned out that I didn't. So I had to eat that bun for school. 
And I was very upset about it because for me, that was, it was big. It was huge. My parents had to spend their money to buy something extra special prepared for me to have. And I, and some people quite couldn't get why I was upset. So I would cry. I feel like I feel so bad. My parents work hard for their money and I had to inconvenience them. And I had some, a classmate come up to me and say, that's their job. They're supposed to do that. But to me, I, I, I just took that really hard and I was very aware of like, how hard they had worked and it was my job to do my job as the daughter go to school get good grades not inconvenience them not ask too much of them because i could see they were already stressed and i think although i didn't struggle with the guilt so much it was more i didn't learn how to ask for help growing up so i was one of those kids who was very independent take on her own emotions won't open up won't ask for help has a hard time receiving help from other people my friends still to this day will check up on me and say how are you doing let's see i'm fine great how are you doing right (laughs) don't worry about me i'm good i can take care of myself right and it still shows up today but i'm still getting a work in progress and i'm getting better at it and I think in the past year, as I've gone and done my own healing, I've been sitting more with this sense of for the first time in my life, like just being able to have that self-love, mm-hmm. not only that self-love, but like self-reverence mm-hmm. to really embody that. It makes sense though, because your parents have had to work so hard because they were building their business and I assume that a part of you, you know, younger self was like, oh, I couldn't ask for help because mom and dad worked so hard. I need to fend moms. And then they translate now into being an adult going, oh, no, I can still look after myself. Mm-hmm. For those of us who were like that, we grew up to be avoidance in the attachment style. I don't know about you, but that was mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best things that I heard about not asking for help. When your friends come to you for help, would you help them? Of course. Yeah. So this is what I, someone told me years ago. He, oh, it was my husband. So he said, when you help your friends or you help people, that good feeling that you get. I'm like, yeah. So he said in a very cheeky way, he goes, so why are you so selfish? You don't let people have that good feeling? I'm like, wait a minute. He goes, think about it. You feel good helping people. And when your friends come to you, they want to help you, but you're not allowing them to have that good feeling. I was like, oh, yeah. But it was still a lot of unpacking as to why didn't I want to ask for help? What did I make that mean? Mm-hmm. Which sounds like yeah. you're doing it. But I, that was a very good way for me to flip it around and be yeah. less resistant to. Right. reaching out to my people and goes, hey, I need help. Yeah, give them the gift of giving too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, last question for you. Advice for your younger self? I tell my clients this. I give my clients this advice a lot too. And this is probably the advice I'd give my younger self when they come to me and they're like, hey, you're like my Asian O&T. And I respect you so much. What do you think about what I'm telling you? What advice would you give me? And I would say, take the time right now to learn about yourself. Right? Whether you are in a relationship or single, it's never too late. But that is so important. Everything else will not matter everything else will fall into place and especially when you're in your 20s and 30s take that time it's okay if you are alone but learn to spend time with yourself love yourself develop that self-reverence that i talk about right it's that deep love connection 
Like I am falling in love with taking care of myself mm-hmm. for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And it feels so damn good. I love that. Sometimes I tell clients that to just spend time with yourself. Yeah. Like even if you just go to the ocean, sit there. I think you and I are not too far in age. We didn't grow up with the pressure of social media. Now for a lot of young people, it's about mm-hmm. look at what I'm doing with friends. So spending time on your own, a lot of them think it's a negative thing because it means I'm not popular. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to spend time with me. Why am I doing things on my own? Because there was, I say was because before the pandemic, there was such a thing about being in a restaurant with 10 friends, going to a movies with people, mm-hmm. and spending time alone wasn't, maybe still isn't a well-received idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, in my, where I'm at, it's a gift. It's, it's such a gift. gift. I've got some time to myself. Fantastic, right? And it becomes even more scarce the older you get, right? I think, at least for folks like me who have busy lives and families. And it's not always going to be the case where you have unlimited time with yourself. It's a gift. What do you do? Nothing? Or do you go to a yoga class? Go for a walk? I would just, I would go to it. My favorite thing to do is to go to hot yoga, sound meditation, chat with my fellow therapist friends, just meditate, cook. I love to cook and just play around with recipes. Just things that like feed my soul. And I, this is also something that I give advice to. You wake up one morning and what does your inner child want to do today? Mm-hmm. And you honor that. Mm-hmm. Yes, so good. Right? What does your inner child like to do? She likes to explore. Mm. I grew up with my parents in markets. So I was often that little girl just running around flea markets, looking at things, observing people in the mall. The same thing. And so when I look at like me before kids, I love that version of myself. Mm-hmm. She is that 28 year old, let's say she would spend a whole day by herself just if Kensington Market in mm-hmm. Toronto. Oh, that was the place to be with or without friends. I was equally happy just being there exploring by myself a whole day there. And just looking at things, absorbing the sounds, the sights, the smells, that really just made me feel really great. I love that. Yeah, or it's that I also remember just carpooling with a bunch of strangers, going to a yoga retreat with people I've never met, and just showing up and meeting people and that is so exhilarating for me. And so I did that recently and I felt like I really connected with my younger version of myself. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Are you an extrovert? I'm not. You're not, hey? No, I'm not an extrovert. People think, I don't know, people think I'm very like quiet and shy, but I really actually enjoy talking to people. This is why you're great at your job. Yeah, and I one-on-one, I love talking to people and meeting new people and Ooh. hearing about them and experiencing new things. I have no problem showing up and just introducing myself to someone new and talking with them. But mm-hmm. certainly when in big crowds and places, and I, I can get overwhelmed. So I think that's where the, the introvert in me comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come to Vancouver next, We'll go explore Granville Island together. That's my oh favorite place. I love that. Have you been? No, I think that was my dream too. I went oh. to Vancouver and start a job there. I don't know if you want to now. 
because the cost of living is quite high. Uh, but, I've heard, yeah. But when you come, well, two of us can bring our our little, our younger self to Grand Island and walk around. It's my favorite place in the city. The wet markets, the food, and it's next to the water. Then there's little boats you can take everywhere to different town. places in town, right? That sounds so good. But I do love being beachy. That's where the puppies is happy. Thank you for listening to this episode. This week's advice from me, Ee, your Chinese auntie, learn to ask for help. I know it can be scary, especially for those of us who had to learn to care for our needs when we were younger. Start slow. If you have a reliable friend or partner, practice with them. For example, if they go to the coffee shop, ask them to bring you a pastry. This sounds simple, but for many, it can be scary. What if they don't do it? What if I ask and they don't come through for me? Remember, the point is to learn to ask for help. That's why practicing with people you trust and starting small is essential. EE says you are worth it, loved, and allowed to receive help from others. Have a good week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, remember to sign up for our newsletter to receive free materials and updates. Links in the website, patriciapeterson.ca. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you in the next episode.